let's jump into our, our sermon today. Has anyone ever said something like this? Go ahead and put that up there if you would, Nate. God, if you'll fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. You ever bargained with God? My bargains when I was growing up tended to do, tend, had a lot to do with girls and my mama. God, if you'll let that girl notice me, then I'll be a great guy. If you'll help my mama not notice what I did wrong, I will serve you the rest of my life. And that's what I did. No, um, he, did not, he, he did not do that for me. Um, <laughs> anyone, anyone ever did this, uh, done this, right? Ever, you ever said this? Okay. Help me not get caught speeding. Help me not get caught cheating. And if your kids are sick, which one of us has not said, God, if you will heal my child, I'll do anything. Or if your marriage is in trouble, God, I'll do anything if you'll save my marriage. Just please intervene. Since the beginning of time, whatever human beings have needed help with, we have bargained with God for that help. And we get ourselves, really what we, happens is we get ourselves into trouble, and then many people ask this question, what do I need to do to get God to clean up my mess? Is there a formula? And trying to find that formula causes a lot of people to walk away from God, and so they'll say this instead. They'll say, since God didn't, then I won't. Here's a translation. If God had behaved the way, go ahead and put that next one up there. If God had behaved the way that I wanted him to behave, then of course I would have behaved. Oh, so it's God's fault. Well, yes, if I'm going to be honest, yes, thanks for noticing. It's God's fault that I didn't behave. This right here could be a mission statement for the guy we're going to talk about today, Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He was the great pretender. He was a traitor. He's the what's in it for me guy. Now, before we're too hard on Judas today, we have to acknowledge that every one of Jesus' original followers were in the what's in it for me category. But you can't stay in the what's in it for me category and follow Jesus at the same time. Because following Jesus is going to cost you something. And if you're following Jesus doesn't cost you something, it's not Jesus that you're following. One time, a, a guy comes to Jesus. We know this is all true because a guy comes to Jesus and he asks him this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, this, uh, this particular story is in Matthew that we're reading. It's also in Mark. It's also in Luke. If you go to those and you combine them all, you find out he was a rich man, he was a young man, and he was a ruler of some sort. What more could the guy want? But even though he had the whole world, he was empty on the inside. And so he's asking Jesus, what do I need to do? How can I trade some of this stuff to get eternal life? He was bargaining with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the guy's like, well, uh, I keep the commandments. Which ones? There's so many. Which ones, Jesus? So Jesus specifically mentions the fifth through the ninth commandments. He says, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not give false witness against your neighbor. Then he has a positive one. You shall honor your parents, your mother and your father. And then he just throws in for icing on the cake and love your neighbor as yourself. The guy's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've done all those. I'm empty. Tell me what I need to do. What can I exchange to get eternal life? So Jesus didn't tell him the law to say you follow the law to get saved. He gave him the law 
to show him he needed to be saved. And this guy missed it, and so many people miss it. The law, the whole purpose of the Old Testament was to show us we're sinners and we can't get to God. We can't trade anything for God. Jesus cuts to the chase and he says, well, if you want to do something that will demonstrate that I'm on the throne of your life, you want to demonstrate something that shows your heart has totally changed, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the Bible says he went away really sad because he had a whole lot of stuff. And I think, I, I'm putting words in his mouth, but I think he's like, you expect me to do that? That costs too much. I'd rather live with my stuff, die with my stuff, than, than give anything to you, Jesus. You can't expect me to change. Jesus wasn't saying that you could buy your way into eternal life. But he was showing, he was demonstrating what was on the throne of this young man's life. What was on the throne of this young man's life? Wealth. So, there's only three types of people. I, I, this helps me, and I'll explain it. I know you can't read everything. This first one up here, this is a person without Christ. Notice that the cross is down here. Christ is outside their life. The, in the Bible terms, we call these people lost because they're not saved, right? Jesus said, I came to save that which was lost. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life, then there's no way he can be on the throne of your life. He's outside your life, and so you are self-directed. Um, you are on the throne of your own life. Now, here's a second option. This person has asked Jesus to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, so Christ is on the throne. And notice, self is down here bowing to the throne of the Father. This is the Christ-directed life. Now, here's the interesting thing. Notice this one. This person has Christ in their life. They've asked Christ to come into their heart, but they've walked away from him like the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter. And so who's on the throne? Self is on the throne. Here's the thing that's really bad in our society. It is very difficult to tell this person from this person. And so this person very often says, if you're a Christ follower, I must be one too because I act just like you. I'm driven by myself on the throne you're driven by yourself on the throne. I'm not changing because you've not shown me anything. Jesus said, we got to be this guy. So the rich young ruler walks away. And then Jesus says a couple of interesting things. First of all, he says, it's very difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Why? Because self is on the throne. And money is on the throne. And then Peter says something he shouldn't say because he's Peter and he always does this. Peter says, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. And then he asked the question that we start off with today. What's in it for us? We've given everything. What's in it for us? And are we any different? God, if you want me to give up my Sunday mornings every week, what's in it for me? God, if you want me to give up that relationship that doesn't honor you, that's a sinful relationship, pulls me away from you, doesn't push me toward you, what's in it for me? I can't be lonely. If you want me to give a portion of my income to the church, you better tell me what's in it for me, God. At the end of Jesus' ministry, when he's arrested... Every one of his followers didn't just walk away. They ran away from him. Why? Because there was nothing left in it for them. And we need to ask the question, what's, are we in the what's in it for me crowd or have we moved on to maturity? Now, Judas and all of the disciples had this mindset, the Old Testament mindset, which said Messiah equals deliverer. 
They thought he was a king. They thought he was going to come with a sword. We need a political leader to throw, overthrow Rome so that we can be, Israel can be back on the top of the heap like they were in the Old Testament. That's what we're looking for. And see, when you study the Old Testament, you'll see, you, if you don't understand this, you'll be confused. They were confused back then because the prophets talked about a suffering servant and they talked about a conquering king. And before we had the New Testament, everybody liked the conquering king part, but they ignored the suffering servant part. And prevailing wisdom at the time said, this is two different people. Now that we have the New Testament, we realize it's one person, Jesus Christ. The first time he came as suffering servant to save that which is lost. The second time he's coming to take what's his. If you don't know him as the suffering servant, you don't want to meet him as the conquering king. Because he'll say, I do not know you. Depart from me. Judas looked at Jesus and he must have thought... You know, this guy's got a lot of good character qualities of a king. He's a nice enough guy. He can do some miracles. But there was one glaring weakness that Judas noticed that any nationalist would notice. And it was a problem for a nationalist. Jesus didn't hate the Romans. Jesus didn't hate anybody. How can you be a conquering king if you don't hate anyone? Judas, I think was looking for a leader like this. You may take our land, but you'll not take our freedom. That's my best whatever, William Wallace. Janie hates this movie because he dies in the end. And Man, I, I love the movie. They're like, yeah, we're dying for. Uh-huh. Conquer King, freedom. Janie won't even watch it. She hates it. See, Jesus' priorities didn't line up with Judas' priorities. And so Judas decided, i got to do something about this. Immediately, we talked about this two weeks ago, immediately after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, people streamed down out of Bethany into Jerusalem. We'll look at the map again in just a minute. It's not very far. This guy's got to be the king. He's got to be the king. He's got to be the king. And, and, and it's what got him killed. But, but when, when this happened, this is Caiaphas, the high priest, decides that Jesus has got to die. But he needed some help. And so let's look at what happens in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. So Jesus had been teaching. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is in two days away. So Jesus said, we're going to the Passover. I know those leaders are there. We're going. As you know, I'm not going to miss. I'm not going to disobey. Every male had to go to, to at least three of the festivals every year, and Passover was one of them. You don't miss it if you're going to be obedient to God. The Son of God can't be disobedient to the Old Testament. As you know, we're going to the Passover in a couple of days. Um, and the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man is, is just this messianic title that every Jew would know. He's talking about Daniel chapter 7. It's just this incredible title. As you know, the Son of Man, the Messiah is going to be handed over to be crucified. They didn't get it. He, he predicted his death over and over again. Now, here's what I want you to see. At the same time, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, which was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus, look at this, secretly and kill him. And here's why. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. The people like Jesus, so we got we to get him when he's separate, when he's by himself. Because on Passover... Jerusalem would be three or four times the population that it normally was because everybody came in. It was the highest holy day. They would come in to celebrate the Passover. 
And so the Romans would send extra guards because they're like, we're not about to have a riot on our watch. And the the high priest was like, we can't have a riot because then the Romans will take away everything. We need a way to get to Jesus when he's isolated. Now, the religious leaders said, we're going to kill him after the people are gone. But But God had already said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus had to die at the moment that the daily sacrifice for sin was being offered. So the timing was moved up because of God. They advanced the timing because Judas comes to them and he says, Hey, I know when he's going to be away from the crowd. I'll help you. Now, at this point in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew flashes back because he wants to tell us the motivation for what Judas is about to do. Verse 6. Well, first he says, here's his mindset. If Jesus is not going to act the way I think he should act, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And here's what he says, or what it says in verse 20, in chapter 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, Bethany is also the home, uh, hometown of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. So he's, he's at a different home. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Okay, put the map up there if you would. Okay, is anybody missing that? See this big arrow? There's Bethany. Look how close Jerusalem is. It's about two miles away. So I want to show you a couple. Next, next picture. This is if you're on the Mount of Olives looking into Jerusalem. Now, notice this is the Dome of the Rock. That's where the Muslims say that Ishmael, that Abraham offered Ishmael. The, the Jews and the Christians say that the Holy of Holies was there. And before it was the Holy of Holies, that's where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Here is the the Muslim mosque. So you're on the Mount of Olives. You're looking over Old Town Jerusalem. You see these walls? Old Town Jerusalem is is like a fort. And so when you say Old Town, it's what's inside. So we're looking at, okay. Now, Now, if you're on the Temple Mount, next picture. If you're on the Temple Mount, this is the Mount of Olives down here. This is a church. There's a church everywhere. If, if Jesus spit, I'm surprised when he spit and healed, you know, I'm surprised they didn't build a church there. But anyway, there's a church right here. Here is the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of these olive trees may have been there when Jesus was there. We don't know for sure, but they lived long enough. They could have been there. And so Jesus comes down here and prays, and, and that sets us up for the next part. Now, John tells us, that this woman comes, let's read that again, go back to the verses. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman comes to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Okay, now go to the alabaster jar, the picture. So there's a jar of very expensive perfume. And if you read all the accounts, it's, it's like a year's wages of perfume. And so when they had a jar, what they would do is they'd put this very expensive perfume in it. They would seal it. And this was like an inheritance for somebody. You don't just use this perfume on anyone. Now, let's say the the average salary is $50,000. I'm just making it up. Maybe it's $50,000, the average salary in the United States. If somebody busts out a $50,000 jar of perfume and anoints my head at lunch, are you going to go, that's a little odd? Why would you waste it on a bald guy? I don't know what you're going to say, but I'm willing to bet that somebody busts it out, you're going to start taking pictures. It's going to show up on social media, right? This is a big deal. This is weird. And the Bible tells us that the disciples were indignant. Say indignant. Now say it with an attitude. Say indignant. They said, why this waste? Why? Picture. <laughs> why? Why waste perfume on Jesus? 
They were indignant. And they said, why are we wasting this? And it sounds so spiritual until you read the rest of the story. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? And look what Jesus calls it. He didn't call it a waste. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. First of all, he says, it's her perfume. None of your business what she does with her perfume. Second, don't you ever call something a waste that Jesus calls a beautiful thing. This woman had just demonstrated how much she value, Jesus values. She said, you're worth a year's wages. I see, years later, Jesus' half-brother James, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, appeared to James. James becomes a believer. He was a doubter up to that point. James writes these words. He says, faith without works is dead. And y'all have heard that. But here's what I want you to hear. Not faith without indignation is dead. Be very careful if you're indignant about something that Jesus calls beautiful. Be very careful that you say, how dare you waste your money to go on a mission trip to Haiti? Because Jesus says, you give a cup of cold water to a child in my name, he calls it beautiful. Don't you dare call wasteful what Jesus calls beautiful. Don't you dare call going to Israel. How can you? What a waste of $2,800, $2,850 to go to Israel where there's 1% Christians. What a waste. Do you, do you think it's possible that Jesus says it's a beautiful thing that we might go to Israel and maybe, maybe by serving, lead somebody into the kingdom of God? Do you think it might be possible? Then don't you dare call it a waste. Take your indignation somewhere else. How dare you waste money? How dare you do anything in the name of Jesus? Look what Jesus says. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. John says this woman was, John tells us this woman was Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus. And he said, she seemed to be the only one who recognized that Jesus was going to die. He predicted it over and over. She's the only one we know of in Scripture that prepared him for burial and death before he died. And it was a beautiful thing. Judas doesn't understand. The disciples don't understand. And this event is what drove Judas over the edge. Messiahs don't die. Do you know how long our nation's been waiting for you? You can't die. What good is a dead Messiah? All of the disciples, including Judas, misunderstood. They underestimated the effects of sin. Because look what Romans 6.23 says. The wages of sin is death. What you deserve, if you've thought a bad thought, one, in your lifetime. Come on, you've thought more than that. Today, probably right now. One bad thought, and the wages you earn are death and separation from God in a place called hell. The wages of sin is death, but, but, and this is what we call the gospel, the good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what good is a dead Messiah? A dead Messiah equals eternal life 
to those who accept him as their substitute. Either you will stand before God on your merits or on Jesus' merits. You can't have both. And you want Jesus. Somebody said that. You want Jesus. Jesus said, she's prepared me for burial. And once again, the disciples don't get it. They weren't worried about Jesus. Their main concern was, if you die, we're probably going to die. What's going to happen to us? They'd already forgotten the lesson of the perfume. And look what Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And I think the disciples are like going, yay, that's great for her. What about us? Woo, I'm concerned about me. Jesus says, it's not about you. My life and death are about the world. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we're in Bethany. Jerusalem's over there. We can see that. We know they're planning to kill you, which means they're going to kill us. Ah! And Jesus says, this little seed that she planted today, this alabaster jar of perfume, as long as there's a world, people all over the world will be talking about this woman and what she's done for me. (laughs) How many of you have heard this story before? In a little village halfway around the world, 2,000 years ago, Jesus predicted that for thousands and thousands of years, as long as there's a world in languages that haven't even been invented yet, her incredible demonstration of love will be preached until he comes again. Don't you dare call wasteful what God the Father calls beautiful. And you need to know that every one of Jesus' predictions have come true up to this point, except his coming back. So if, all of, if we have all this evidence that, that Jesus keeps his promises, a person who has an ounce of wisdom is going to say, I think he's coming back. He said, I'm coming back. <laughs> go back to the alabaster jar. I don't know if I put it. There you go. So the disciples, Judas in particular, looks at this and he goes, these finances could have been used for better. And really the translation is used for me. Matthew 26, 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? We don't know Judas' true motivation. People have tried to guess it for years. Here's what we do know. No matter whether he was selling Jesus out or whether he was the the treasury keeper, he was going to profit off Jesus either way. Because the Bible tells us that, that he used to steal from Jesus' treasury. He was the treasurer. So I sell him out. I make money. I, I, he, he becomes the king. I make money. It's about me. Now, what kept Caiaphas and the religious leaders from arresting Jesus? It was the crowds, right? They needed insider information when Jesus would be vulnerable. So Judas shows up and he says, I can do it. I can deliver him to you when, he's, when no one's around. That's got to be worth something. Verse 26, 15b. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And this is remarkable because Judas was an eyewitness of Jesus' power of his teaching, of, of his authority for three years. And I've heard, so 38 years I've been in ministry, I've heard people say all throughout my ministry, if Jesus would just prove himself to me, I would believe. With all due respect, no, you wouldn't. Judas saw it, and he sold him out. He became fed up because Jesus wouldn't do what 
Judas wanted him to do when Judas wanted him to do it. Some of you have become fed up with God because he wouldn't do what you wanted him to do when you wanted him to do it, and you walked away. (coughs) Judas got so fed up that he traded Jesus, his relationship with Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a male slave. That ought to disgust you. But you want to know what else should disgust you? You and I trade Jesus for something no more valuable all the time. Oh, you want me to do this job and you want me to sacrifice my family? I will do it on the, on the God of money and power and fame. Oh, you want to give me prestige? Oh, well, I'll turn my back on the church. and The church is the bride of Christ. Oh, you want to give me your body? I'll turn, my, I'll turn my back on Jesus for one night. In that moment, it really felt like the right thing for G- Judas to do because if he didn't act, how would he benefit? What's in it for me? Verse 16 says, From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And at this point, Matthew jumps back in the, the week, the Passover week. And uh, Jesus sends the disciples into Jerusalem to make preparation for the Passover. They go to an upper room where they had the Last Supper. And while they're talking, Jesus takes off his, his outer robe, his garment. It's a rabbi's robe. It, it identified. It's a, it's a priestly type robe. He takes it off. He wraps a towel around himself. And he washes the disciples' feet. And I'm sorry, if you're looking for a political William Wallace-type Messiah, this is not how you get there. And they actually say to him, Stop being a servant to the King of Kings. And Jesus says, Guys, this is a lesson. And he says, You think I'm a big deal? I'm a big deal. I'm the son of man, the Messiah, and I'm washing your feet. What he's saying to you and me in 2021 is when you think you're a big deal, it's way past time to serve others. I'm too busy to serve. Whatever you're too busy with, you're trading that for Jesus. So just look in the mirror and call yourself what you are. I'm a Judas. I sold him out for something that's not going to last. When Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he puts his rabbi robe back on. And somewhere in the course of this night, Judas decides now's the time. We don't know if someone said something about Gethsemane or if it was just a regular pattern and and Judas knew that he was going to go out there. But but Judas has a problem now. He's in the room with all the disciples and it's just the disciples and Jesus. How's he going to get out the room? And while he's thinking of that, Jesus says this in John 13, 21. Very, t- very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And if you're Judas, you think, oh, no. Now how am I going to get out of the room? Because Peter went and bought that stupid sword Jesus was talking about. And he's looking for a reason to use it. But here's the amazing thing to me. Jesus says to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't start going, oh, I think it's Aaron. I think it's James. They didn't do that. They were, very, they were very upset, and they actually, they were like, who's dumb enough to betray the Messiah? And then they're like, is it me? 
Is it me? They're not pointing at anybody else. Is it me? In the midst of all this confusion, Jesus looks straight at Judas and he says this in verse John 13, 27. What you are about to do, do quickly. Yes, Judas, I know that you're about to betray me. I'm not going to reveal you right now and I'm not going to stop you. Here's what you need to know about that. God's never going to stop you from doing what you intend to do. Oh God, if I shouldn't have sex with her, stop me. God doesn't do that. If you're intending to do it, you're going to do it. Oh God, stop me from alcohol, drugs. Stop me from lying. Stop me from stealing. No, he doesn't stop you from what you intend to do. Now look how the rest of the disciples, verse 28 says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said to them. Everyone in the room is assuming the best about Judas. and Maybe he's just running an an errand for Jesus. As soon as Judas is gone, Jesus says another stunning thing. Verse 31, when he, Judas, was gone, Jesus says, now. Okay, you got to stop on this word. He says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. In other words, everything's working out just as God planned. God's always in control. Judas is going to betray him. Yeah, I know. Jesus always knows. The Bible tells us that when he chose the disciples, he already knew which one would betray him. So we don't know what Judas was thinking, but we do know, we know this, he never expected Jesus to die. And let me show you how we know that. Matthew, back to Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 through 3. Early in the morning, so Jesus has been arrested. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. This is how we know he never, he never expected Jesus to die. Because when he saw it, he's like, oh, no. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. What was of extraordinary value at one moment, the 30 pieces of silver, when he saw Jesus was going to die, suddenly had no value in that moment. And that's a picture of your life and mine one second after you die. All those things that seem so valuable will pale compared to the King of Kings seated on his throne. And if you could, you would trade every temporary thing that you've traded for Jesus. You'd trade. I take it back. I take it back. Let me go back. I'll do better. What Judas sacrificed his relationship for Jesus for in the heat of the moment is something he never would have done if he'd have known the consequences. We'll give you 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Sold! Jesus dies and he says, Unsold! Please take it back! I'll give you a raise if you'll, if you'll deny Jesus. Well, I'm not going to deny Jesus. Well, then how about work on Sundays? I'll give you a promotion if you turn your back on whatever ministry you're supposed to be doing in a church. Sold to the highest bidder until you die and you stand before God. Unsold, unsold. I'm sorry, God. Judas gained. Well, I skipped ahead. Go ahead and do this verse. Judas says, I have sinned for I've betrayed innocent blood. And, and the religious leaders are like, we don't care. We don't care. We got what we wanted. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, went away and hanged himself. So Judas gained a 30 pieces of silver world and he lost his soul. 
When, when Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, in this strange bit of irony, he calls Judas the son of perdition. It actually means waste. The son of waste. Judas is the one who said, what waste? Jesus called Judas the son of waste. The one who chose to be lost. The one who chose destruction. That's a waste. And you don't want to hear the Savior say, what a waste of a life. Don't be like Judas. Don't waste your life on something that's temporary. Because when you resist God, you're responsible. We are responsible for the outcome. God so honors your freedom to choose that he will not mess with your freedom to choose. He will not stop you from doing what you intend to do. When all we do is consider the moment in front of us, listen to me. Resisting God seems like the best thing to do in the moment. But that's because the enemy is whispering, you're an idiot if you give this up. Because he doesn't want you to see the consequences. He doesn't want you to remember a Judas who was filled with remorse. I take it back, I take it back. And we don't have any evidence that that Judas ever prayed to, to God. He threw the money back in, he killed himself, so we believe he's burning in hell today because he traded Jesus for money. We're no different. Seems like the easy choice, but if you ask Judas, you ask Caiaphas, you ask any of the people who rejected Jesus, who died and are burning in hell, they'd say, whatever you do, don't sell him out. The opposite side is as when we surrender to God, then God is responsible for the outcome of our actions, of our lives. So the safest place you can ever be is in the center of God's will. Now, it's going to seem like it's going to seem like a risky thing to follow God at the moment. Cuz it's going to cost you something. But if you take the big view of eternity, I love it in scripture cuz it says over and over in the Psalms, what can mortals do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can mere mortals mortal 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 mortals. What can you do to me if I am on God's side? You can kill me. I'm in heaven. Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. I want to live like that. In the long term, it's a much greater risk to put your faith in this. Carrie Underwood never sang Dollars, take the wheel. Take it from my hand. I can't do this on my own. Dollars, take the wheel. Some of you pray into it. Dollars, take my life. Use me. Abuse me. Throw me out. If in your moment of dying... (laughs) If you're not going to pray to this, why would you make it your God? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that that we learn 
from the son of perdition, a life of waste. And we understand that the enemy wants us to give up our whole lives for what's temporary, but the Son of Man, the Messiah, wants us to give up our lives for what is eternal. And it's such a no-brainer that we miss it. Raise up a generation, multiple generations of new lifers who won't try to gain the world and lose their soul. Instead, they will give their lives and be rewarded from the King of Kings for all eternity. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.